Daniel, if you're new with us, it's a good, good week to be here. Uh, we start a brand new series. We love working through books of the Bible, and Lord willing, we'll spend 10 or 11 weeks uh, in this great book, uh, the book of, of Daniel. I'm going to pray, and we'll get, we'll get into it today. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that you speak. And we, we say like the prophet, speak, Lord, for your servant listens. Comfort our hearts in these truths that we're going to look at today in the book of Daniel. May your people have a greater degree of trust in you as a result of being in your word today. We pray this in Jesus' good name. Amen. Well, when we enter uh, the world of Daniel, we enter a strange world. We are in Babylon. That's modern-day Iraq, just southwest of Baghdad. We're in the 6th century B.C., God's people are in exile. It's the first time I've said exile, kids. Due to disobedience and in accordance with the prophet's own word. They've been carried away from their homeland. That's what it means to be in exile. They're carried away from their, their home. And we meet this young man at the beginning of the book named Daniel who spent the majority of his life in a strange land. Some 70 years Daniel spent outside of Jerusalem. Roughly 605 B.C. to 536 B.C. Daniel's name means, my God is my judge. And true to his name, Daniel lives for his God in a strange land. And in this book, we learn much about God. We we learn about how to be faithful in strange times, faithful in hard times. And I think the main theme of this book is God's sovereignty over history and nations, kings and kingdoms. A question that gets answered in this book is the question that the psalmist raised in Psalm 137, verse 4. How can we sing the Lord's song in Babylon, in a strange land? And that's a great question. How can we be faithful to God in whatever land he places us, in whatever time he places us? And Daniel shows us, indeed encourages us, that it's possible to be faithful even when you're surrounded by pagan influences and propaganda. Now, you know what it's like to have that feeling of not being at home, wanting to be home. I'm sure you've uttered words like, home sweet home. When you get back to your recliner, men, put your feet up. Or you say, there's no place like home, or I bet you've said, I want to go home. Right? (laughs) Maybe your first youth camp experience your first week in college, first time you went to another country perhaps, or when you go visit your in-laws for holidays. I want to go home. (laughs) One time I got stuck in Ukraine because there was a volcano in Iceland. You cannot predict this stuff. You can't make this stuff up. I was stuck for an extra week because all the flights were grounded. Perhaps some of you remember that. I just wanted to go home. We know that feeling. We know that ache inside, that longing inside. But for a Christian... We are never really at home in this life. And that's because, as Paul says, we are citizens of heaven. Or as Peter says, we're strangers and sojourners. Or as the writer of Hebrews says, we here have no lasting city. We seek the city that is to come. We're exiles. We're pilgrims. We're strangers. Now, Daniel has some difficult parts to it. Language is difficult. The prophecies and the apocalyptic sections are quite difficult. I'm going to give those to Shane and Walter 
for all of your, uh, if you have good interpretations, but please fill their inbox with them. Um, the book is, is, is arranged in a very uh, easy to remember way. The first six chapters are stories about Daniel and his friends. So it's, a, it's narrative. It's pretty straightforward. The second half of the book, however, chapter 7 to 12, are about dreams and visions given to Daniel. And so it's difficult in some of those sections. But again, back to the primary theme, the main point is quite clear that God is sovereign. He reigns. As one writer says, in spite of appearances, God is in control. That's the message of Daniel. And this, this truth is intended to bring hope and encouragement to beleaguered people, people who are weary, people who are struggling. God reigns. We also see that God rescues in this book. Chapter 3, there's a story of rescue. Chapter 6, out of the lion's den, there's a story of rescue. And God not only reigns and rescues, but he also reveals in the book of Daniel. He shows these great uh, visions of the things that are to come. And Daniel shows us how in light of all of the trouble that he's in and all the strangeness that, he's, that he feels, it's possible to be faithful in such times. He shows us the need for courage, the need for prayer, the need to remain obedient when times are hard. But the message is not be like Daniel or, as one old song said, dare to be Daniel. Rather it is, and it's certainly not get on the Daniel diet, uh, as some <laughs> have wanted to say. It's fine if you want to, but, but, the, but the, the big idea is believe in Daniel's God. That's how Daniel can be faithful in a strange land. It's because of his God. And that's how we can be faithful. So we need to realize, though we'll learn many life lessons from the characters in the story, the real hero of the story is our God. He reigns. He rules. We can trust him. We can serve him in spite of hardship. In fact, I want you to look at it. If you're looking at your Bible three times in chapter 1, it says God gave. Verse uh, 2 the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 9, he says, and God gave Daniel favor and compassion. Verse 17, as for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill and so on. The Lord gave, God gave, God gave. Where is God in exile? He's present. He's active. He's exercising his sovereignty. Though a lot has changed in the lives of those who are in exile, one thing has not changed, and that is the character of God. Ralph Davis talks about, in his commentary, Elizabeth Elliot, who was twice widowed, first by the death of her martyred husband, Jim Elliot, and then by the death of her second husband, theologian Addison Leach. And she tells how helpful the Apostles' Creed was to her as she mourned the loss of her second husband. She used the creed to answer this question. What things have not changed even though my husband has died? What has not changed even though my whole world has changed? What has not changed? And that's the kind of question surely Daniel and his friends had on their minds. Everything has changed. We've been uprooted from our homeland. What has not changed? And we'll all have times in our lives, won't we, when things change, relationships change, leaders change, your residency changes. What has not changed is answered in Daniel chapter 1. 
God reigns. God is presently and actively exercising his sovereignty. God is God in Babylon, just as he is God in Jerusalem. God is there, wherever there might be. He is present here. You see in the first seven verses, God is in control over the great geopolitical events of the day. And then in verses 8 to 20, you see God exercising his, his favor and his grace in interpersonal outcomes and in one's personal development. God is present and active in the lives of Daniel and his three friends. And you see in verse 21 that God is sustaining his servants in exile. And that should all encourage us today. Do you worry about big geopolitical events? Maybe one or two of you might. Do you need favor in dealing with someone? Do you wonder how to make it through a hard season of life? Welcome to chapter one. We'll break it down in those three parts. Number one, God's sovereignty. Number two, God's favor. Number three, God's sustaining grace. God has not changed, even though everything else has changed. God's sovereignty, first of all. You see God's active sovereignty in verses one and two. We have the historical data in verse one. In the third year, the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The historical data. We read of other kings in this book, and we're going to read of a lot of kings in this book. And here it starts with Nebuchadnezzar, the great warrior king of Babylon. Read about him in various places. It would be helpful as you do your own personal study of Daniel to be reading the book of Jeremiah, for example. The places in the land of Shinar, that is Babylon, where God's people are taken. You see that in verse 2. He brought them to the land of Shinar. We, we see this place mentioned all the way back in Genesis 11. That's where the Tower of Babel was constructed. It was a place known to, to be the place where they wanted to deny God and defy God. And God's people have been taken there to this land of Shinar. So that's the historical data. But notice verse 2. You have the theological data. Why did this happen? God did it. God did it. Now, like, like in our day, that would not make the media. You have historical data and you have false data. Rather, rarely, rarely ever do you find any theological data. But this is the big story. If this would have made the media, it would have been Marduk reigns, the god of Babylon. But that would have been inaccurate. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into the hands of the Babylonians. You may ask, why did that happen? Well, this is, again the consequence of the disobedience of God's people due to their idolatry. They were foretold about this over and over and over again, and God is executing his own faithfulness by sending them to Babylon. But God did it. But notice also in verses 1 and 2, you see something of the, the humble sovereignty of God. As it says, some of the vessels were taken out of the house of God, and it was placed into the house of Nebuchadnezzar's God, and placed in this treasury. God allows for these holy vessels to be taken out of the temple and placed into this idolatrous place. This is very similar to 1 Samuel 5, 1 and 2, when the false god Dagon, was, uh, was, was, uh, when the ark was placed beside Dagon. I don't know if you remember that story. And of course, Dagon, they wake up the next day and he's smashed on the floor, right? 
It looks like in verse 2 here, God is defeated, that he's this puny little God. The Babylonians come in, Nebuchadnezzar's this monster, and he takes all the stuff out of the, the temple and puts it in his own idolatrous palace. But what God is doing here is he, he's willing to suffer shame so that his people might be awakened. And this is very characteristic of our God. After all, this happened on the ultimate scale in the coming of Jesus Christ, willing to suffer shame so that we may be saved. He is the sovereign God, but his sovereignty has this wonderful, unmistakable, (laughs) incredible sense of humility about it. The sovereign one condescends to us. He's not just sovereign up there somewhere, but God came to earth in the person of Jesus Christ. It's his humble sovereignty. Act of sovereignty, verses three to seven, his quiet sovereignty. And you see this as, as these youths. It's very interesting, isn't it? The king commanded Ashpenaz, great name, his chief eunuch, great title, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, the best and the brightest, in other words, good appearance, skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding and learning, competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. So Nebuchadnezzar takes the the best and the brightest and tries to give them this Babylonian makeover and pulls them out of their homeland, begins to educate them in the literature and the language, and that's more than just for their ability to be able to communicate with uh, those in in the land. This is trying to impose upon them this Babylonian worldview with all of the beliefs and so on. And he also wants to kind of wine and dine them. As you see in verse 5, he assigns them a daily portion of the food that the king ate. And you know the king ate well. This is the ruler of, of the world, humanly speaking, at the time. And he's going to give these little Israelite kids, these young youth, the, the food that he ate and the wine that he drank. And he wants to give them this three-year education. And then he, they're going to stand before the king. We're told in verse 6 that he not only educates them after relocating them and whining and dining them, but he even gives them new names. It says, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah and the chief eunuchs gave them names. Daniel, he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah, he called Shadrach. Meshael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. The goal of Nebuchadnezzar here is to take away every vestige of their Israelite roots. He wants to de-Israelite them and have them assimilate entirely into this Babylonian world. Now, God is barely mentioned, though he is in verse 2, but through all of this, He's not mentioned at all in verses 3 to 7. His quiet sovereignty is at work. We should never mistake, as we've said before, the lack of the miraculous for the absence of God. His quiet sovereignty is always at work. His sovereignty. Now let's look at his favor in verses 8 to 20. This too should give us great hope. The narrator switches back to Daniel's Hebrew name, kind of a clue as to what's about to unfold, right? that Daniel's not going to be fully assimilated into this world. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. 
So Daniel says no to, uh, to this provision of food and drink. And one wonders why Daniel decides to draw the line here. And we don't know for sure some of the foods... Sacrifice to idols? Was it uh, Daniel wanting to avoid opulence? Was he wanting to avoid dependence on Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian Empire? That doesn't seem to work very well because they were all dependent on some level uh, on them. Most likely, I think it's just the, the, a feeling, a sense, that Daniel felt like he was crossing the line into culture too much. That it's, they're trying to make us Babylonians. And he wants to avoid assimilation. This is Romans 12 too. Not be conformed to the patterns of this world. But we're not, we're not given exact details because again this is, a, this is a story. This is a narrative. We don't have little footnotes where the point of verse 8 is this. Right? We're just given what happens here and we, we try to make sense of it. And I think this is a good place to stop and say something that we're going to see a lot. In, especially in the narratives of Daniel. And that is, Daniel shows us the need for wisdom. Things are complex in Babylon. And here's what I think our default is, or at least for a lot of people, and that is to gravitate to extremes when things are com complex. And what I mean by that is this. Daniel felt it wasn't a compromise to work for the king, but he did feel like eating the food was a compromise. And as exiles in this world, we will feel this tension, right? Things are not always simplistic. If we have black and white in the Bible, we've got black and white, and that is easy. But often, there's complexity in this world on how we apply God's revealed word in certain situations. You know, you'll hear, you can't work for that president. You can't go to that school. You can't shop at that store. We hear these kinds of things all the time. And what do we do? We don't have a, you know, a verse in a, in a chapter. Well, we need wisdom. We need wisdom. Think about this. God's people were told in Jeremiah 29, verse 7, to seek the welfare of the city, that is the city of, of, of Babylon. And by living as good citizens and seeking the city that they were dwelling in, they would find their welfare. Right? But sometimes you've got to draw the line with that as well. And that's what Daniel's doing in verse 8. And so I think here's the question is, we've got to ask ourselves all the time, how are we too at home in this world? Right? Is it too much media? Is it the way you spend your time? Is it your theology, your beliefs? Is it your rhythm of your week? Right? How are we two at home? And let's live out of that conviction. Let's live out of wisdom. Now, this is not the, the main part of the book that most people think about when they think about Daniel, verse 8, that he wouldn't eat and drink this, this meal. They usually think about the fiery furnace and the lions. <laughs> we intentionally on our graphic wanted to not have a lion, but to have something else. The lion story is awesome. But I want you to see here that small choices are really important. Ralph Davis puts it well. Sometimes smaller commitments made along the way fortify faith to plant its feet when it has, has to meet more severe threats. 
You see, small steps of obedience has a cumulative effect over time. It builds up your faith. Don't just live for big decisions and big events, minimizing small choices. Daniel says, nah, I don't want that. And you know that was some good grub. You know that was good wine. And Daniel says, no. Sinclair Ferguson has pointed out, centuries after the witness of David, certain wise men from the east came seeking one who had been born king of the Jews. They didn't have clarity about him, but they had seen his star and came to worship him. How did they know about the promised Messiah? We don't know for certain, but perhaps we could trace their search back to Daniel and his faithful witnesses in the court of Nebuchadnezzar. It's not impossible. Whether or not that connection is valid or not, it is clear in the story of Daniel that small choices lead to big things. And in story form here, we're seeing a young man live out of what he was taught as a kid his whole life, namely the Shema, Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one, and you shall worship the Lord God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. And this is what it looks like on the ground. Not yielding to the culture, not yielding to idols, even in a pagan land, living out that Shema. Well, it's very challenging. God, as a result here, verse 9, gives Daniel favor, and the text also says compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. Favor is his grace. He's with Daniel. This gives us encouragement in our exile, in our, in our hard times. And he gives him compassion. And it's important to underscore that word because one of the things you see in the book of Daniel is not just wisdom displayed in this young man, but you see compassion. He has compassion even for these kings that he serves. Those that have taken him out of his homeland. God gave that to him. He gave Daniel wisdom and he gave him a big heart. And it says here in verse 10, the chief of the eunuch said to Daniel, I fear my Lord, the king who has signed your food and your drink. For why should you see that you are in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. <laughs> the guy's like, I'd like to keep my head. And if you don't eat <laughs> what I give you to eat, I may not keep my head. And my head's important. It's attached to my body. Daniel, can you help me out? And you see uh, Daniel here displaying wisdom because he comes up with a plan. He's, he does this throughout this book. Daniel says to the steward, so he goes a step down, uh, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over to Daniel and his friends, test your servants for 10 days. And let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Now, Daniel here does something that's important. That is, he doesn't throw a religious hissy fit. Right? That's, that's what a lot of people would do. No, I'm, I'm not eating that food and that drink. And if they come back and press him, then he just throws this tantrum. He's not a religious rebel rouser. He has compassion he has wisdom. He works through this bureaucratic system. And the steward accepts his plan. I just kind of wonder if the steward is going to eat the food and drink the wine himself. That would have been better than what he would have had. <laughs> but we don't know. Now, we see what happens next in verse 13. As Daniel goes on with the, the plan, let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. And at the end of 10 days, he was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine that they were to drink and gave them kids 
vegetables. Here you go, vegans. This is your proof text, the, the vegan proof text. <laughs> that sounds horrible to me, just vegetables and water. But you notice it didn't make them slimmer. It made them fatter, which I think means we are to take this as a miracle. I, I'm serious. I'm serious. Let me quote an authority. Alistair Begg says, it was not the Daniel diet it was the Lord's miracle. It's not about superfoods, it's about the supernatural. How else do you explain a guy who's eating a bunch of, uh, I don't know, okra or whatever they eat in Shinar, uh, <laughs> and water? And they look great. And, and what again, the author wants us to know, how does this happen? God gave, God gave, God gave. It's his favor. It's his favor. In this little personal dealing with a steward. Daniel devises a plan. They put him up to the test, and he looks good. He doesn't look, uh, you know, uh, uh, sick or ill. We see that our God, who's, who sits high, looks low. He who sits high looks low. He looks on favor, looks on his servants with favor. That's where God dwells with the humble, with the contrite. Verse 17, we see here God's favor displayed in their wisdom. These four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. They did super well in school. Why? God gave. God gave them learning. God gave them skill. Verse 18, at the end of the time when, they, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar, and the king spoke with them, and among all of them none was found like Dan Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than the magicians and the enchanters that were in his kingdom. God's goodness surrounded them. God was the, the, the key to their success. They did better on all their exams. Where is God in exile? He's reigning in Babylon. He's displaying his sovereignty. He's extending his favor to his servants. He sits high. He looks low. This should encourage us, regardless of who our world leaders are, regardless of the culture's posture toward our faith, regardless of how many hardships and what kinds of hardships we face, we live with this peace. We live under the reign of Jesus Christ. <laughs> Michael Green, a New Testament scholar, points out that early Christians dated the deaths of martyrs with the appropriate year, and then they added this phrase, Regante Esu Christo, in the reign of Jesus Christ. So we say it today with them, 2021, in the reign of Jesus Christ. <laughs> Perhaps you've seen those memes with uh, 2020, and it's of a dumpster fire, and it just says 2020. But we could say 2020 in the reign of Jesus Christ. 2021 in the reign of Jesus Christ. He is present and he's active in hard times, in strange times. And just let that ooze into you and give you great peace today. Final word, verse 21. God's sustaining grace. Where do we see that? Well, 
this is more than just a historical marker. Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Well, didn't we start the chapter with Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon? That's how we start the chapter. How we end the chapter, the writer pushes fast forward. And he takes us all the way to the reign of the next world leader. Say, who is Cyrus? Well, it, not Billy Ray. He's not in, he's not in Persia, Babylon. <laughs> no mullets in, in Persia. Uh, the achy, breaky, bad, mistakey. Uh, this is Cyrus of Persia, <laughs> who reigns in 539 B.C. He's also identified, uh, it's a bit confusing, we'll look at it in weeks ahead, don't bother yourself with it now, as Darius, and there's some options for that. But again, put that to the side, just be on the lookout for that, though, as you read ahead. Nebuchadnezzar passes from the scene, and Babylon eventually falls to Cyrus and the Persians, or the Medo-Persians. But who continues? Daniel. This is more than a historical note about the next superpower. I think this is the writer intending to show us God's sustaining grace. Nebuchadnezzar, this big warlord, passes from the world, and the next king comes in from another land, the land of Persia, and Daniel is still standing. He's like a boxer who is up against an impressive opponent, and he just outlasts him. God's people will outlast the kingdoms of this world. How? By God's sustaining grace. I want you to also consider the fact that Daniel did things God's way, was blessed, but never went home. Until he really went home. Doing things God's way doesn't mean we always get what we want. It's important for us to remember, we don't have this transactional sort of relationship. Daniel wanted to go home to Jerusalem, but never went home to Jerusalem, even though he was obedient to God away from Jerusalem. But God sustained him. God preserved him. And today we take comfort in God's sovereignty, in God's favor, in God's sustaining grace. You say, man, this was a hard year. How about Daniel? He had a hard life. His whole life lived in exile. God sustained him. We meet Daniel in his youth at the beginning. When we end... We'll see Daniel as an old man, faithful, 70 plus years. Kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall, but God's people go on. Presidents come, presidents go. Senators come and go. Mayors come and go. Influential leaders come and go. God's kingdom is forever. And let's remember another who lived in a strange land. There was another who drew the line, refusing to move. He was faithful to the injuries. God gave, God gave, God gave. Ultimately, God gave his own son. He gave his own son for us. Jesus left heaven for earth, quite an exile. He stepped into the limitations of time and space. He refused to eat for 40 days and 40 nights. He was perfectly obedient. He suffered at the hands of evil leaders. And then he did the unthinkable. He took our place on the cross to bring us forgiveness and eternal life. And Jesus Christ rose from the dead, outlasting his opponents. 
<laughs> and he did it all to bring us home. And today, Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords, looks favorably upon us because of Jesus' faithfulness, because of the Son of Man, as Daniel calls him, we will one day truly be home. And we'll be more at home then than we've ever been. To which we say, Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Your people wait for you. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word today. When things change, when things seem to be spinning out of the control, when things seem strange, when things seem hard, may we never forget that you are sovereign over all, that you alone are God, that your kingdom is forever, and that Jesus Christ, the victorious warrior, has prevailed and he will come again to consummate his kingdom. May this breathe great peace in us, great comfort in us. And may we show this world what our king is like. Just as Daniel lived this obedient life in a strange land, grant us grace to do that. Grant us that kind of courage, that kind of trust. Obedience for decades, that's what we all want. And we know you are the one who empowers it. So grant us grace, we pray in Jesus' good name. Everybody said, amen. amen.